Hello, it's Jamie here, and welcome back to Bloody Bites. And today's about things that have slipped your mind, because the subject is forgotten battles, hauntings from history, the ghosts we choose to ignore. And it is extraordinary how so many smaller events feed into greater events, how we overlook those tiny things in life that come back to haunt us later on. Take, for example, the limousine that Franklin D. Roosevelt took to Congress on December the 8th, 1941, the day before. There was the day of infamy, of course, Pearl Harbor. So he was off to Congress to make his speech. And the guards around him, those who were protecting him, were concerned that there might be Japanese assassins there to take out the American president. But there was legislation, there was a law against any money being spent on buying a new presidential armored car, armored limousine. Anything that was over $750 wasn't allowed. So they cast around for an armored car. And the Treasury Department came up trumps because they found a Cadillac. And it just happened to be the Cadillac they had confiscated from Al Capone, the notorious gangster, in the early 1930s. So the American president traveled to Congress to make that speech, the precursor, the the speech he gave before Congress voted almost unanimously to go to war with Japan on that same day uh, in a an armored car, an armored limousine that had uh, armored glass, that had armored plates in the doors, that had a fake police siren, a two-way radio, all belonging to Al Capone. So those were two totally unrelated pieces of history that came together on that particular day. And it just happens to be the fact that Al Capone's car, that armored Cadillac, was the first armored presidential limousine that started a trend that led to the beast of today in the cavalcade of American presidents. So that's really where I want to start. And although it's not a battle, it's worth mentioning. And because we're talking about forgotten battles, I want to talk about those early battles that perhaps influenced things that came later on. I've mentioned before in earlier podcasts the Battle of Shangani River and Bambezi in 1893. And that was important because that was when Cecil Rhodes sent 750 mercenaries into Matabili land and they came across Matabili warriors, uh, regiments of Matabili warriors. And those 750 uh, British mercenaries killed thousands, up to 4,000 Matabili warriors because they had the Maxim machine gun with them. And no one took those lessons of that colonial war and saw what might happen on the Western Front in the war that came about, the Great War that started in 1914, a few years later after Bambezi and the Shangani River episodes. So that's how smaller forgotten battles can influence events later on. 
Then you get not just the machine gun, you got the invention of poison gas. And no one knew what people like Fritz Haber, uh, the German poison gas scientist, leader of that effort, that research and development program, uh, would come up with. It actually all started with the French, because back in August 1914, the French army were using 26 millimeter grenades filled with xylyl bromide or tear gas uh, to throw into German trenches at the Battle of Mons right at the start in 1914 uh, and, and found they quite effective. In fact, the French had experimented with CS gas or tear gas back in 1912 when they were used uh, against Parisian bank robbers. So it was found to be effective. So the French started developing tear gas to be used as a military tool. But of course, Fritz Haber and the Germans were, were moving ahead and came up, with, of course, with the first use of chlorine gas in April 1915 at the Second Battle of Ypres, using canisters to let the chlorine gas drift across the battlefield and hit Allied trenches. So that was the first use of real poison gas. But, of course, the Germans had experimented with gas earlier on at battles such as the Battle of Bolimov in January 1915. That was west of Warsaw, when the Germans fired 18,000 shells filled with xylem bromide. And that was fired into the Russian trenches. And it's said that there were about a thousand deaths caused by that CS gas. But it certainly proved the point that gas could be a weapon of war. And Fritz Haber took that on, developed the German chemical weapons program, and the rest, as they say, is history. And it's quite strange that Harbour was then given the Nobel Prize for chemistry in 1918 for the synthesis of ammonia. So no one uh, had any moral qualms about that in spite of his developing, being the godfather of chemical warfare. And yes, chemical weapons have been used years before. In the 5th century BC, the Spartans were using sulfur pots against the Athenians. So it had developed, but it was industrialized on, and put on a major war footing by the Germans in World War One, and that spread to the Allies as well, who started their own development programs but harbour was the key and of course he then went on after the first war having fled germany thinking he'd be uh, indicted as a war criminal he went on to spread the the word and the capabilities of chemical weapons production in spain and russia so he had no qualms about being the godfather of chemical weapons that's for sure so We've talked about the machine gun and chemical weapons, but it's worth going back in, in ancient times to see these battles that might have affected things later on that, that we sort of overlook. And, and some are known, although forgotten, some are absolutely not known and not talked about. Of course, it's worth going back to the Battle of Kadesh in 1274 BC, and that was Ramesses II going to war against the Hittites. And the scale of these battles were always 
enormous. I mean, Ramesses II was believed to have an army of about 20,000 with 2,000 chariots. The Hittites had an army of about 40,000 with 3,000 chariots. And the Hittite chariots were three-wheelers, so they could carry more men on board the chariot. And each side claimed victory in that battle. Ramesses was building friezes and temples and monuments to the battle. The Hittites were, were putting up monuments and putting out edicts saying that they had won. But it was the most extraordinary clash of armies. And to command those armies, to control those armies, and to control those enormous armadas of chariots, those fleets of chariots, must have been incredibly difficult. So that was the Battle of Kadesh. And actually, they came to a truce and signed a peace treaty. And it's the first known peace treaty, which is actually still in the United Nations. They hold it up as an example of what can be achieved through peace negotiations. So that's the Battle of Kadesh. Moving on, of course, there were many, many battles in ancient Greece. Uh, the ones that stand out are those that involve the Persians, of course, and Xerxes invading Greece. I always think the Battle of Plataea, some call it Plataea, but the Battle of Plataea in 479 BC is absolutely remarkable. Again, because of the size of the scale of the armies and the Greeks were outnumbered. It's said that the the army of Xerxes could have numbered up to 120,000. It's absolutely amazing the scale of these of these uh, these armies. And of course, the Greeks did their usual thing after staring down the opposition for several days. They then retreated when the Persians took their water supply. And of course, it was a fake retreat. And the Persians gave chase, just like other battles, like the Battle of Hastings and elsewhere. And the Greeks turned, the Spartans turned, the Persian general Mardonius was killed, unhorsed and killed. And one of the problems for the Persians was that they tended to have wicker shields and, and stiffened linen armor, whereas, of course, the, the Greeks, the Spartans, were wearing bronze armor. So guess who had the advantage? And that was really the end of Xerxes' attempts to conquer Greece. And, of course, like all these ancient battles, every commander, every soldier was looking for divine signs that, that the gods were intervening or favored one side or the other. I've mentioned in previous podcasts the uh, Battle of Gorgamala with Alexander the Great in 331 uh, BC and the moon turned blood red and he saw this as a divine portent. Well, of course, you know, there were battles against Mithridates in which a uh, 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 meteorite fell between the armies and that was seen as a divine portent by both sides so you know th this always tends to happen perhaps the romans should have read those signs in 24 bc when they went to war against queen amenorinus of the kush people and uh, what had happened is that the queen had noted that the governor of Egypt, sent there by Emperor Augustus Caesar of Rome, uh, was taxing her people, her lands. And she decided to invade. So she took an army of 30,000 men uh, into places like Philae and Sinai. 
took out three Roman garrisons, and the war, the Marotic Wars followed, and there there were various uh, battles like Selkus, there were 10,000 Roman soldiers. The, uh, she was eventually defeated, but in the meantime, she had taken um, uh, the head of a bronze statue of Augustus Caesar, taken it back to her capital, put it in the floor of her temple so everyone could walk on it uh, as they went to the temple. Uh, she was totally Amazonian. I mean, she had lost an eye in battle. Um, she led her armies fearlessly. I mean, frankly, you know, give her some testicles and she would be ready to advertise Adidas or Nike sports bras, frankly. Uh, amazing character. And Again, she fought the Romans to a standstill to the point that the Romans signed a peace deal with her and she didn't even have to pay tribute to the Romans as she went on ruling her kingdom. And Nubia, that area, was always a thorn in the side, um, often the backside of both the Romans and the Egyptian rulers. Um, and it's always said that Saladin actually went to war against the Nubians. That's how he cut his teeth when he became a sultan of both Egypt and later of, of Syria, of Damascus. So those are the sort of ancient battles. Staying in the Levant and the Holy Land and those areas, it's worth moving on and looking at some of those sort of crusader battles. And again, they're battles that we tend to have forgotten. The, the, the ones that are most important, for example, are 1071, the Battle of Mamzaket, when the Byzantine Empire, uh, led by Emperor Romanus or King Romanus IV Diogenes, uh, went to war against the Seljuk Turks, led by Sultan al-Faslan. And the Seljuk Turks were the coming force of their period. In that year alone, they took Jerusalem. And you can see that the Battle of Mamzaket and the taking of Jerusalem, the, the, the threat they posed to Constantinople, the taking of Anatolia, those were all the forces that led later on to the first crusade of 1099, the attempt by the Europeans to regain access to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, to the Holy Sites, because the Seljuk Turks stopped pilgrimages to those Holy Sites when they took over the Holy Land. And at Mamzaket, Romanus IV was roundly beaten by the Seljuk Turks. He very foolishly divided his army. The cavalry went ahead. He originally started with an army of 40,000, and just like the Crusader army in the 12th century being defeated at the Battle of Hattin by Saladin, you know, it was this problem of moving from the coast, moving inland, that always ensured that those Christian armies were, were cut off from their naval bases, from support from the sea and were surrounded and destroyed. And so it was this divided army of Romanus was surrounded, encircled. He was wounded, captured, taken before the Sultan. And history relates that the Sultan asked Romanus, were I captured by you, what would you do to me? And R Romanus replied, I would parade you through the streets or have you killed. And the Sultan said, well, I'm going to do something far worse. 
I, I'm going to let you live and free you. And it didn't work out well for Romanus because he wasn't killed by the Seljuk Turks. He was treated very well. But when he returned to Constantinople, he was blinded, tortured and died um, because his own people, the leadership, the rulers, the elite of Constantinople did not appreciate the defeat that he had brought upon his own people, his own army. So that's Mamzakert, and uh, it was an extraordinary and very important battle in 1071. Another often overlooked battle, and another one of those crusader battles that, that occurred between the sort of uh, 12th and 13th centuries, was the Battle of La Forbi in 1244. And again, it was the politics of the period. It was that sort of time when the Crusaders, they didn't have the strength to move inland. They were really pushed back to Outremer along the coast of the Holy Land and the Levant. And they, and they couldn't move inland. They couldn't take Jerusalem. They couldn't oppose the strong sultans of Egypt. But what they did is they came up with an alliance with the sultan, with the rulers of Damascus against the rulers of Egypt. So Egypt invaded and they took a lot of the areas of Tiberias, of Samaria. Remember the Samaritans, you know, Judea, they killed the remaining population of Jerusalem. And so the crusaders set out uh, to confront them. And it's said that the armies were about 11,000 strong on each side. And you had all the old orders, the military orders of the Crusaders lining up on that plain north of Gaza in 1244. And the Crusader army was completely wiped out. You look at the, 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 the damage caused to those military orders. You had over 300 hospitalers killed, over 300 Templars killed. I think there were only about uh, 25, 26 Templars left standing at the end of that battle. You look at the Teutonic Knights, there were 400 Knights on that battlefield uh, at the time. There were only three left at the end of that battle. It was also famous, that battle, uh, because the leper knights of St. Lazarus were also involved and they were badly mauled. Um, maybe their arms fell off, who knows? But it, it was a bad battle and, and the survivors, the few that there were, were, were enslaved and taken back in chains to Egypt. So those were the Crusader battles. Moving on through history, you get some more extraordinary battles and encounters. It's worth going to 1351 because there you had the battles in Brittany for, for who would dominate the dukedom of Brittany. And of course, Philip VI of France, the King of France, backed the House of Blois and the great uh, combative battling uh, King Edward III of England sent his representatives, uh, the House of de Montfort, uh, to, with an army to, to fight for that land of Brittany. And they met those two armies. And it was decided that it was no point the armies going into battle because there would be unnecessary slaughter over simply who would own that dukedom. So what happened was what was called the combat of the 30 or the battle of the 30 where 30 heroic warriors from each side did battle with each other and it grew out of that tradition that 
crusader knightly tradition of the grand melee where each side would battle the other and take hostages and see who would come up trumps at the end who would do best at the end and at the end of this battle of the 30 this combat of the 30 in 1351 there were basically two french knights killed about nine english knights killed so it was decided to shake hands and go away and the house of blois backed by the king of france won that day and so that dukedom remained, Brittany remained in French hands. So that was a small forgotten battle, but of course it, it had wider implications for how things could be settled. But it's interesting, the grand melee, that chivalric nature of battle should dominate, should actually influence um, wider political events. And what's interesting about that time of 1351, it, it was at the time that, that uh, you know, a third to a half of Europe had been killed by the Black Death, but there were still battles going on. But perhaps that's why the combat of the 30 happened. No one could afford to lose any more men uh, during that period because there were so many deaths anyway. So that's the Battle of the 30. Moving on again, we get into the 18th century and 1788. And that was a fascinating battle. I mean, one that has been overlooked because here is the Battle of Karen Seabees. And no one has heard of it, but it was an amazing battle because this was the Austrian army, the, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor going to war against the Ottoman Turks uh, crossing the Timis River. And what happened is the Austrians sent the Hussars forward across the river to scout for the Ottoman army. This was in modern day Romania. And they didn't find anything. What they found were Romanians uh, selling schnapps. So the Hussars got completely drunk. The Austrian infantry came forward, found the drunken Hussars, and the infantry wanted um, some schnapps as well. The Hussars refused started making makeshift uh, defences out of the schnapps barrels, and they started fighting among themselves. This fight then developed. The uh, head of the artillery of the Austrian army um, thought that when they saw the infantry lumbering back that this was a Turkish advance. So he opened fire with cannons and quite a lot of people were killed. I mean, some historians claim 10,000 were killed. It was probably actually only in the, in the hundreds, but it was catastrophic route. And the uh, Holy Roman Emperor had to lead his forces back across the river and out of the area. And when the Ottomans arrived, when the Turks came forward, they just found scores of drunk, dead and wounded um, lying all over the place. Uh, it could have been the Munich Beer Fest, basically, but it was still the most extraordinary battle. And uh, it stands out in history. Uh, and, and apparently, one of the reasons that the Austrians, with all their many different nationalities attached to that army, thought that the Turks were attacking, was that the Austrian officers were shouting, halt, halt, and no one understood what they were saying. They thought it was a, 
Turkish cry that they, the Turks were shouting Allah, Allah. And uh, so that, that was one of the reasons for the uh, misunderstanding that happened and the chaos that ensued. We now move on to the 19th century and uh, a battle that has always fascinated me was the Anglo-Zanzibar War of 1896. Again, a much ignored battle. In fact, it was a war and it is the shortest war in history because by all accounts, it only lasted 38 to 40 minutes because what had happened, the Sultan of Zanzibar had died. He was pro-British. His son who succeeded him was anti-British. And because Zanzibar was a British protectorate, the British were not going to put up with this. So they sent out a cruise and three gunboats. And the only thing standing in their way was a small force of Zanzibar troops um, led, commanded by the Sultan, and of course, the royal yacht of Zanzibar, which had the extraordinary name of Glasgow, which seems just so strange. I mean, it's so random as, as a name for the royal yacht of Zanzibar. But in the ensuing melee that lasted 38 minutes, the royal yacht was sunk and for the wounding of one British sailor, uh, 500 Zanzibar troops and a few civilians were killed and wounded. So that was the end of that war. And again, it, it allowed the, the British Empire to stamp its mark and stamp its foot and make sure that its protectorates, colonies and possessions uh, abided by its rules. But hey, that's empire for you. So that's the stretch across all those centuries. Of course, we get to the First World War. There were some great battles as well. I mean, huge battle of Tannenberg, for example, in 1914. We don't sort of think of those battles in the East quite so much. But that battle involving those great German leaders and German generals, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, who made their names later on, who would have thought that Hindenburg would then, years later, become embroiled in the coming to power of Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. So that battle saw the Russian army, the Russian second army of 150,000 being totally annihilated by a rather weaker German army. And it was one of the sort of lesser armies that Germany had and that most of the German armies had gone to the Western Front. But here was this German army out on a limb and it still managed to destroy the Russians, which is why the Russian general Samsonov ended up killing himself after that battle. I think only about 10,000 of the original 150,000 strong Russian army made it back to Moscow. So it just shows the scale of defeat. And that started uh, uh, the, the sort of ball rolling in terms of Russian defeats, Russian miscalculation and mismanagement. And the blowback, of course, was the eventual uh, Russian Revolution and the ousting of the Tsar and the eventual murder of the Tsar and his family and the coming of communism and Bolshevism. Mm -hmm. 
you go forward to the Second World War, and again, it's the smaller battles that really stand out, even though they're, they're often overlooked and forgotten. Uh, for example, the Battle of Chahanic Barracks, where 300 Czech soldiers who hadn't heard any orders to lay down their arms confronted, dug defensive lines and confronted the Leibstandarte SS division and were badly, badly mauled. Of course, none of those 300 Czechs survived. They were all either killed during that battle or tortured to death, just like their commander afterwards. So th these are the sorts of things that happen in these small encounters you know history moves on you know our attention is is drawn elsewhere and those battles those skirmishes those small encounters are simply forgotten even though they quite often are the are the marker stones the waypoints to wider conflict and what happens later so i think that sort of brings us uh, to our conclusion to our postscript and I wanted to mention naval battles because, again, they, they, often they're sort of overlooked and there are huge encounters like the Battle of the Red Cliffs. Uh, again, a battle uh, that is huge in Chinese history. And this represents the sort of end of the Han Dynasty. You had the warlord General Cao Cao coming south with an army of, uh, some say, up to a million. He had a fleet of a thousand ships all tied together in a sort of fortress at the mouth of the Yangtze River. And there was this floating wooden fortress. His enemy um, promised to deliver, to surrender their ships, and they turned up. But of course, they were fire ships. So <laughs> the fire ships set fire to this wooden fortress and completely destroyed Cao Cao's fleet of 1,000 ships. I mean, an astonishing battle. We talk about uh, the Spanish Armada of 1588 and Drake and his few fire ships uh, going into the roads of Calais and routing the, the Spanish fleet that had to sail around Scotland and the west coast of Ireland and half those ships were destroyed. But this was on a completely different level, a massive battle. And again, the Battle of the Red Cliffs certainly isn't well known in the West, but it has totally en entered folklore and legend in China. But we're more used to sort of smaller battles. And, and again, it's these smaller battles that can make a difference. Because if you take the Battle of Lissa, the naval Battle of Lissa, for example, in 1811, this is several years after the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. And this was interesting because it was led by just a captain with three Royal Navy frigates. He was called Captain William Host, and he attacked uh, six French frigates and five uh, brigs and sloops who were accompanying them, and he smashed them. Uh, he sank one French frigate, took two captive, over 700 French casualties, and, and this was, on the face of it, a tiny naval engagement. But that and another engagement uh, near Boulogne where five 
British frigates attacked a larger force of French frigates and defeated them as well. It was those small encounters that persuaded Napoleon that he was never going to dominate the Mediterranean and he might as well turn east. So what did he do a year later? He did that ill-fated mission with five or 600,000 men into Russia. And that was because of small engagements like the Battle of Lissa in 1811, convincing him that Britain, Britannia ruled the waves and that he was never going to be able to challenge that, so he might as well stick to land campaigns. And that is why, in this Forgotten Battles podcast, this Bloody Bites, I wanted to focus on those forgotten battles that still have ramifications. But right at the end, I'm going to take to the skies because I want to mention one battle that some of you might know about, but some might not. And that was an individual fight. This was September the 15th, 1940, a day that has since become Battle of Britain Day. Because on that day, a Dornier 17 bomber headed for Buckingham Palace and was going to bomb it. And it could have absolutely laid waste to the, to, to, to the building. And it was heading down the Mall. But who should be approaching it head on but Flight Sergeant Ray Holmes and his Spitfire. And Ray Holmes discovered that he had run out of bullets. He tried to fire, but nothing happened. So he decided to climb a bit and then come down. And he used the wing of the Spitfire to cut off the tail of the Dornier. The Dornier crashed outside Victoria Station and the Spitfire of Ray Holmes crashed in Buckingham Palace Road. Later, the uh, pilot of the Dornier 17 who managed to bail out, uh, he was attacked by a mob near Victoria Station, uh, including apparently uh, housewives armed with kitchen knives. And he was badly injured and he died uh, apparently a day later from his wounds. So that in itself is a, is a tiny battle, but so evocative of the tensions and the horrors that were inflicted at the time. And the name of that pilot was Robert Zaber, and he died, uh, probably stabbed actually. But Ray Holmes, the Spitfire pilot, he came down in a garden in Chelsea, landed in a dustbin. Again, it's so Battle of Britain, isn't it? It so appeals to our memories and instincts about that battle. And he survived. And years later, in 2004, his Spitfire was dug out of Buckingham Palace Road. It was 12 feet underground. And it was dug up. And Ray Holmes was presented with the control stick or the space stick of that Spitfire. And the firing button was still switched to fire. So that's an extraordinary ending to another tiny forgotten fragment of a battle in history. So that's about it for today's Bloody Bites. See you next time. Thanks and goodbye. So it goes. His name is James Jackson. My name is Tom Ashton. You've been listening to Bloody Bites from Bloody Violent History. Please pass this podcast on to a friend. You can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. <laughs>